Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, PMQ's Unpacked, where Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times, joins me. And we pause the action live from the House of Commons and try to explain what is going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel taking a look at the news. Today, we're discussing seeing friends and vaccine enemies. Uh, here we go, then. This is Camp Alice, John Kampfner and Alice Thompson. Now, we've, I'm banning talking about the Royals because I think we've had quite a few of that. <laughs> no. And talking about Piers Morgan. Well, you, can, you, can, you can storm off if you want to, John. Alan, Alan I will, right Morgan. now. Right now. Take, your, take your strong views on Megan elsewhere. Uh, let's talk about, because <laughs> this matters slightly more to the average person, uh, the vaccine row. Uh, with uh, the UK, the EU still at loggerheads over the vaccine and who's got them and where they should be going. Um, what do you make of this, uh, Alice? Um, th- it feels a bit like the EU making a lot of noise to slightly distract from the fact the UK is, at least on this metric, doing rather better. Well, I'm just so relieved that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, watched Contagion because he says that the reason that we have such a fantastic rollout and that we've done such a fantastic job with the vaccines is he watched the film and thought the only thing that matters actually is getting the whole country vaccinated and that's what's happened and i think that was the problem is that no one watched the film in europe and as a result <laughs> it is a mess and it's true they just didn't get so actually i remember interviewing bill gates and him about a month ago and him saying there was a real problem that the conspiracy theorists were all in germany and no one in france wanted to be vaccinated they were the most anti the vaccine being surprised then because you think the germans are so pragmatic and you know straightforward about it all but part of the problem for the European countries, particularly France and Germany, so a lot of people just don't want to be vaccinated. So they were very nervous anyway. And they should have had a campaign right from the beginning when they knew that to get them all vaccinated. Instead, because it's been such a mess over there, they are slightly blaming the British for everything when there's quite a lot you can blame the British for. But I think on the one, you know, on the vaccine, they should really be praising them just because not only have they come up with a very effective vaccine in Oxford, but they've also shown how to be very effective in getting it out and vaccinating everyone as fast as possible. So, John, it turns out that on this issue, the Germans don't do it better. I know, I get ribbed about that. I know, I know. You're not, you're not the first, Matt. Um, <laughs> and by the by, I get vaxxed on Friday, so that will be, um, that will be, that will be nice. But um, uh, and that I've said to German friends, and they're really sort of 
shocked and, and no little aggrieved. No, I mean, it, it is absolutely on this score a slam dunk. And it is absolutely great that we have uh, got this one right. Um, I don't think that this is a, a manufactured row because it's one thing to vaccinate a country. And of course, any national government, that should be their top priority. And that was one of the problems in the with the whole EU rollout. I mean, there were two. One was um, handing over jurisdiction to a transnational body that wanted to distribute it pro rata around the EU, which is fine. But if you're a German or, or anybody else, you knew you could get it done more quickly. And that added to grievance. And the other one was the EU and the Commission were just not kitted out to do it um, in a way that national governments were. So this is one of those occasions where they they did completely get it wrong but it's one thing to vaccinate a country or even a region but if there are whole parts of the world that are not vaccinated then even leaving aside the question of ethics just in terms of uh pragmatism you it, it, it's it's a false reassurance because for as long as borders are open and they will be soon um then all countries are equally vulnerable it's interesting. So, so the, the latest on this, that Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, has accused the EU of making completely false claims that Britain was blocking the export of coronavirus vaccines out of the UK to the rest of Europe. And he summoned a senior EU official to the Foreign Office for a sort of dressing. This has got properly sort of diplomatic mm. row uh, uh, written all over it. Is the so far, Alice, it felt a bit like we were rising above it, not getting into a ding-dong with, you know, Macron when he was saying that the uh, um, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine what didn't work for over 65s and not, you know, gloating too much. Is there a, a risk that we we are slightly belatedly falling into the trap of, of playing the EU's game on this? Yeah, if I was Dominic Robb, I think I'd try and keep out of it. Um, at the risk of sounding slightly like the royal family when you're um, you know, <laughs> right above it all. But there is a sense, isn't there, that actually that we have been lucky, that we have got the vaccine, that we have managed to get it out, that actually just don't say too much. I think the only problem is you do want people in Europe. I don't like the idea of them thinking that we're grabbing it all for ourselves and that we're refusing to share it all. Because one of the benefits of having this vaccine and that's been produced in Oxford and AstraZeneca has done so well with the team is that we can get it out and we can help other people and... You know, you do look at actually the Russians and the Chinese are using their vaccines as sort of soft power to get mm. influence. And there is a sense that, that I mean, I think we should have taken Ireland, which has five million people, and we should have offered it to them as a sort of peace offering almost because, you know, they've gone through so much with Brexit. And I think we could have done that with other countries, too. And we should be. And I hope we are going to do much more of that is that, um, you know, we don't just um, use it for ourselves. But we say to people, look, we've we've got enough. And um and that should be the way forward for the Brits. And I think it's fantastically good for us if we can do that. What we don't want to look at is, well, these tiny little islands that's sort of hogging everything that we've done. And I don't think that actually the scientists at Oxford want that either. John, it's sort of interesting because I was sort of thinking if this, if it was the other way round and it was Boris Johnson uh, getting it wrong on the efficacy of vaccines, which actually has sort of led to a drop in people willing to take it. We, we talked about this on this, uh, earlier this week about how... Uh, more people in France and Germany thought that the Oxford vaccine was unsafe compared to other vaccines. That, you know, and that that was that was leaders of countries to, uh, getting that wrong. If Boris Johnson had got that wrong, or if Boris Johnson accused the EU of having a total export ban, uh, which was also totally wrong, uh, the EU would be in total uproar about it, wouldn't they? And, and, and lots of people in this country would be too. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm minded to uh, use a certain phrase, recollections may vary um, on this in terms, of, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of who said who said what to whom. But I mean, what it really, really, really depresses me this, because when you start summoning officials and diplomats, that is the language and that is the behaviour towards an adversary or almost an enemy. That's what we do to the Russians. That's what we do to the Chinese when, you know, they invade countries, when they put down uh, demonstrations, when the government in Myanmar starts opening fire on people. These, for goodness sake, are supposed to be our friends. We were part of the club until very recently and we chose to leave. And the level of manufactured acrimony and the kind of language that David Frost is using and Dominic Raab is using, we've got, you know, and you look at the figures now of more than 50% drop in trade with Germany. This is absolutely, whether we're in or out of the EU, Europe is central to this country's well-being, to our future, to people traveling, to uh, people's private lives. And this level of acrimony on both sides is just threatening to get out of hand. And somebody has got to start putting out some olive branches and getting this new relationship onto a much more collaborative and, and uh, less acrimonious uh, level, because everybody will suffer if we don't. And we probably shouldn't be gloating too much, uh, Alice, because although the gamble, the, the Matt Hancock gamble on vaccines does seem to have paid off, other other big gambles haven't. And there's a, there's a pretty damning report out today on Test and Trace uh, um, and how it's cost phenomenal amounts of money uh, without any... Um, uh, what was it the the uh, common spend the public accounts committee said the NHS yeah. test and trace cannot show it's made a measurable difference yeah. to the pandemic despite unimaginable sums of money being public money being allocated to it and I suppose maybe that's just what happens in a in a national crisis you you bet the house on a whole load of things and some come off and some some don't but it is still a phenomenal amount of money isn't it Alice it's astonishing the worst one was when you realised that um, they were all they've got all these people ready to go in the summer and then they only use one percent of them and you thought you know. The, the idea that people were just sitting around waiting to work and they couldn't work out how many of them they needed and what they needed was just extraordinary. And that is, I mean, Dido Harding, I think, has got to take some of the blame for that, you know. And it's difficult because, you know, you just never know what you're going to get given and what it was and it's a new scenario. But the waste is astonishing and even worse when we're now going through a why aren't we paying NHS workers more conversation. Yeah, because yeah, it's, tw- so it's £37 billion pounds has been allocated Over to altogether. Years, yeah. Twen- £22 billion for this financial year, another £15 billion for next year, uh, of which £5.7 billion has been uh, spent uh, so far. I mean, part of me just thinks maybe, well, uh, is it that just tested trace doesn't work or it doesn't work if you have lots of cases? And actually, if you are Dido Harding, you can say, well, look, test and trace works if you've got only a handful of cases. If you're Australia or New Zealand and you get two cases and you can trace everyone and you can, you know, whack the mole. But if your entire garden has been dug up by moles, it's quite difficult to <laughs> set about whacking to slightly it, muddy, yeah, the, I mean, <laughs> muddy the metaphor. <laughs> I love the idea of you playing whack-a-mole. Um, the, um, the, the way we've done it here, I mean, other countries have got track and trace, uh, did get track and trace under much... Uh, under a much better regime than we did. And she has just been throwing money around. I mean, I'm reading uh, the British Medical Journal's report on it, just 
full of stats about how every level we got it wrong. And I always, always, always go back to the fundamentals when anybody ever starts to crow about the vaccine or whatever. Britain, 185 deaths per 100,000 people. Germany, 85 deaths per 100,000. And I could rattle you off all other countries as well. We had more than twice as many deaths per head of population and more than twice as many cases. And it's great that we are vaccinating now. But this idea that, you know, to use this awful sort of football terminology, oh, we scored in the last minute and everything is now going to be all right. There are hundreds of thousands of devastated people and a lot of people who died who shouldn't have died had we got our act together earlier. Yeah, I think there'll be lots of lots of people have uh, sympathy with that, John. Uh, Alice, let's talk about your column today. Sort of focus on the on the human level. Of it. I loved your column today because I've I've really felt so. Your column today is, is talking about friendship and how we need we need real life friends and not Zoom calls. And I've basically spent my week uh, or my weekend just filling up the diary with going to meet friends in a pub in Salisbury one weekend and organising a barbecue there. And some of them might not happen. And, you know, we, we wait to see what happens with dates. But just having some dates in the diary and thinking, yes, great, some real-life humans who I don't live with. Well, what's interesting is this new book by Robin Dunbar, which is called Friends Understand the Power of Our Most Important Relationships, which is about friendship. But it's also it doesn't actually say whether friendship needs to be with family members. So it can be with cousins or with friends you've met at school or university or work or anywhere. It, but I, what I liked about it is you only need five friends. It's not saying you need hundreds and hundreds. You just do need four or five people. And then if you have those friends and you look after them and you discuss, debate, uh, care for them actually what happens to you is that your mental health and your physical health is much better so you can smoke and you can drink and you can take no exercise and it doesn't matter as much as it does if you don't have any friends which i find <laughs> extraordinary so i, mean, I, I always think you need friends but i didn't realize that actually physically it's that important and they say loneliness actually he said is a, a mechanism for showing you that you need to do something because actually it is dangerous to be lonely because it's so bad on your immune system. So I thought that was fascinating after a year when we haven't been able to see our friends, seeing that actually the psychological and the physical impact of not having friends is really that huge. It is, yeah. What, what, what do you think, John? Are you looking forward to seeing your friends? I got invited to uh, my first sort of proper post covid party on the 26th of june and the person who invited me said why haven't you replied and it went into my spam so i was going to have my very first i was going to have my very first post corona proper knees up not these awful uh zoom things that i basically gave up on very quickly because i mean it's one thing to have zoom work meetings i just think in in this period some walking and talking and telephone good old-fashioned telephone was a hell of a lot better than yet more sort of trying. Somebody had a, a significant birthday a few weeks ago and people, all the guests were asked to dance in front of their computers. And I just thought, no, no, I just thought, no, I can't. I, no way, no way. It's bad enough at the best of times. Um, you there's no way. You your lederhosen on. I know, I know, I know. That, that would have been, I was waiting for that, Alice. I was waiting. Um, no, uh, so I, I ducked out of that one. No, it's going to be brilliant. And that is definitely the, and I was so fascinated in your, in your co column, uh, uh, Alice, you know, the sort of releasing of endorphins. And as you said, just that whole sense of 
well-being from just be able to being able to yak um, with your friends and to sit outside in, in a hopefully when the weather's reasonable uh, outside on a wooden bench uh, of a pub just with one or two friends and just spend a few hours yakking. I mean, that is the most sort of significant loss we've all had in terms of that side of life during COVID. John Campbell and Alice Thompson there, and you can read them both, of course, in The Times every week. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Right, up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast, and now it's time for this... PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, it's PMQ's Unpacked. If you haven't heard it before, what we do is we pause the action live from the House of Commons between all of the exchanges uh, to uh, analyse and explain what is going on. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Boris, uh, by, not joined by Boris Johnson, I'm joined by Tim Shipman, uh, political editor of uh, the Sunday Times. I'm slightly distracted by Boris Johnson. Well, my hair is getting a bit out of control now. Um, I haven't had a clip for some time, so I can understand why you might uh, have made that comparison. Well, I can confirm that uh, Boris Johnson's hair is also looking a bit wild, although perhaps not quite as, as wild as yours. Uh, Tim Shipman, you, the uh, Labour Party launching its local election campaign tomorrow. Would this be a bit of a dress rehearsal, do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're going to see. I mean, uh, PMQs, when there's not one great big meaty subject to get your teeth into, can often descend into an exchange of slogans. And I suspect uh, even more than usual, both leaders will be looking to get some sign bites in by by the close of play. Um, We're about to see, you know, a lot more politics uh, around all of this, I think. It'll also be interesting that this could be one of the last M- uh, PMQs with so few MPs in the House of Commons. There's a lot of pressure, uh, particularly being led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the uh, Commons leader, to try and get more MPs in the Commons, get the House of Commons back to normal, uh, as he would say. Uh, and uh, and that could probably only benefit Boris Johnson, do you think, 
bit more noise behind him. I think. Well, I mean, it, traditionally, if it, it benefits um, whoever's having a better day, I mean, I think there have been occasions that we've pointed out over the past few weeks when Keir Starmer's had some okay lines that, with a, a following breeze behind him, might have landed a, a bit more effectively. But if you're telling jokes and mocking the prime minister and delivering sort of uh, powerful attack lines. It's better if you've got a bunch of people cheering behind you because, uh, you know, when the public sees that footage, it, you know, it gets a bit more of a feel for it. I think we'll all be glad to see them back. And and it sounds like the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, is also keen to get people back. Um, over the past few months, there's been a slight sense of Tory whips and, and, and the Leader of the House desperate to get a bit more support behind Boris Johnson uh, in some tricky patches, but the Speaker's not been too keen on it. It sounds like he's now pretty up for it as well. And I think think you know it will be interesting to see in the coming weeks how that changes the game um it's not just about sort of attack and parry it's about you know pmqs at its best and at its most meaningful is a sort of test of wills between the two leaders but it's also about a test of support behind you um, and when you're losing you know the echoing silence behind you is quite telling at the moment you know for the last few months we've not had that we've not been able to gauge how these performances are going down with their own teams and I think uh, that will make it a more interesting uh, contest each week. Yeah the silence particularly behind uh, Jeremy Corbyn but also sometimes behind Theresa May what is always much more telling than the uh, the cheering and the noise that you'd, you'd uh, normally get. As you said that's just a Tory MP phoned me last night in part just to just to sound off about the fact that uh, they felt that the the Commons was dragging its heels a bit on at least saying when MPs could get back in the House of Commons. Um and uh, you know it would make yours and my job much easier Tim because we have to bump into more MPs it's quite difficult to have a secret conversation with an MP if they're si- they've got to sit on a separate table in Portcullis House yeah well I think that's true of lots of th- you know it's true of politicians and of journalists spontaneous meetings <laughs> are important okay let's go into the spontaneous meeting of the House of Commons this is Keir Starmer who does the Prime Minister think deserves a pay rise more an NHS nurse or Dominic Cummings Mr Speaker, uh, as, I, as I told the Honourable Lady from the Liberal Democrats uh, earlier on, uh, we owe a massive debt as a society and uh, I personally uh, to the nurses of our NHS. And that's why we've asked the Public Sector Pay Review Body exceptionally to look at uh, their pay. I want to stress, however, as the House knows, that uh, starting salaries for nurses have gone up uh, by 12.8% over the last three years. And it is thanks to the package uh, that this government has put in place uh, that we now have 10,600 more nurses in our NHS, Mr Speaker, than there were one year ago, and 60,000 more in training. Uh, just to be clear, the MP for St Albans who was talking about that, there's the uh, Lib Dem, uh, Daisy Cooper, who asked an earlier question, also on this question of pay for uh, the NHS. This is a line that uh, Boris Johnson could have prepared for um, Tim Ship because Keir Starmer tweeted it several days ago asking, you know, why £41,000 pay rise for Dominic Cummings and a £3.50 pay rise for, for nurses. Yeah, and it's one of those stories that sort of broke off the back of the budget. So after last week's PMQs, um, and Starmer's not been able to have a go at it yet, and it's obviously one that cuts through with the public. Um, most polls show overwhelming support for um, uh, for a big pay rise. Um, so far, they're the only public servants getting a pay rise, but it's not deemed to be enough by uh, you know the general consensus view of the media and public opinion, and Boris Johnson's on the back foot. But I suspect we'll see him introduce a degree of wiggle room here that will uh, allow for uh, at least um, a U-turn, if not a screeching one, in, in a month or two's time. 
it's sort of interesting the politics of this and Boris Johnson keen keen to sort of hint that it might be slightly higher. Uh, one of the other big people who were tweeting a lot about it last week was Andy Burnham, obviously now the mayor of Greater Manchester, saying it was outrageous that nurses were getting a one percent pay rise, uh, despite the fact that when he was health secretary, Alistair Darling, the chancellor, announced a one percent pay rise for nurses. So, um, uh, but that doesn't appear to be a, a line of maybe that is a line of attack that Boris Johnson might might use next uh, when there, when there's not money to go around. Chancellors tend to go for um, the, the measures that will save the most money. And there are quite a lot of people who work in the NHS, so a pay freeze um, actually raises quite a lot of money. Let's go back to the House of Commons and hear from uh, Keir Starmer. But, Mr Speaker, he says nurses' pay has gone up. I know he's desperate to distance himself from the Conservatives' record over the last decade. As he well knows, since 2010, nurses' pay has fallen in real terms by more than £800. And he didn't answer my question. It was a very simple question. He's been talking about affordability. He could, he could afford to give Dominic Cummings a 40% pay rise. He could afford that. Now he's asking NHS nurses to take a real-term pay cut. How on earth does he justify that? Mr Speaker, as I, I repeat the point that I... Uh, have made. I, I believe that we all owe a massive uh, debt to our nurses, indeed all our uh, health care workers and our social care workers. And uh, one of the things that uh, they tell me when I go uh, to hospitals, Mr Speaker, as I know the right honourable gentleman does, is that in addition to, to pay, one of their top, their top concerns is to have more colleagues on the wards to help them with the undoubted stress and strains of the pandemic. And that's why we provided another £5,000 in bursaries uh, for nurses, another 3000 to help them with particular costs uh, of training and with childcare, Mr Speaker. And it's because of that package that this year, I believe, we're seeing another 34% increase in applications uh, for nurses. And we are on target. This government, this government of this party of the NHS is on target to deliver 50,000 more nurses in our NHS, Mr Speaker. OK, we'll just um, uh, duck, duck in there. I mean, I... The, the, this dispute, first of all, about um, is it a pay rise, is it a pay cut, it, this basically depends on when you start counting, doesn't it, Tim? Yeah, and it's also about inflation. Inflation at the moment, um, uh, a 1% pay rise, according to the official inflation number, would, would, be a, would be a real terms rise. But the expectation is that inflation goes to about 1.5% this year. Uh, so a 1% rise is uh, a real terms cut. Uh, though everybody else is getting a freeze in the public sector. And the argument Boris Johnson seems to want to make is we'd rather have more nurses uh, than have them pay more. And if you look at the number of people who've lost their jobs in other sectors of the economy, thanks to the COVID crisis, who are now applying to be nurses, um, you know, the simple rules of the market suggest that, uh, you know, people are happy to go and work on on those wages. This is all about, you know, what it looks like rather than the sort of on the ground effects that it's having uh, to the profession. Um, I'm also slightly surprised that um, Boris Johnson didn't point out uh, Keir Starmer saying that he gave uh, Dominic Cummings a 40 percent pay rise and he's only giving nurses one percent. pay rise. I mean, in, in pounds and pence, the dents to the Treasury of giving nurses a 40 percent pay rise would be slightly more than one person. You can argue about the merits of it. And was Dominic Cummings worth the extra money? But in in, in terms of finding the money to pay for it, it's slightly easier to give one person a pay rise that, rather than tens of thousands. Well, one, one was about 40 grand and the other's uh, into the billions, I believe. So, um, yeah, um, it's an interesting argument. I mean, what Boris Johnson would really like to say about Dominic Cummings, of course, is that he also had tired of Dominic Cummings, got sick to death of him and drummed him out of Downing Street. But I doubt that that's <laughs> the answer that will be forthcoming now. Well, let's find out. Let's see uh, where Keir Stubber goes next. 
Mr Speaker, he talks about recruitment. There are currently 40,000 nursing vacancies, 40,000 and 7,000 doctors' vacancies. How on earth does he think a pay cut is going to help solve that? And frankly, I'd take the Prime Minister a bit more seriously if he hadn't spent £2.6 million of taxpayers' money on a Downing Street TV studio or £200,000 on new wallpaper for his flat. Mr Speaker, they say charity starts at home, but I think the Prime Minister's taking a bit too literally. Let me try something very simple. Does the Prime Minister accept, does the Prime Minister accept that NHS staff will be hundreds of pounds worse off a year because of last week's budget? Let's just, let's just jump in there a, a sec, just to, just to have a moment's silence for that joke that died a death uh, in the middle of the That's the, the point, of isn't it? It wasn't that bad a joke by the standards of Prime Minister's questions. It, it, you know, it teases on a subject that the public cares about. This stuff about the Tories being fat cats who've given money to their mates and spend taxpayers' money on this, that and the other, um, that, you know, for vanity purposes, um, that does cut through with the public. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the best joke you've ever heard. It wasn't the worst, but it did die on its proverbial behind because there was nobody behind Keir Starmer to laugh their heads off, um, which is sort of the point we were making earlier. Yeah, charity begins at home because he spent all this money on his wallpaper. Yeah, I remember when David Cameron, David Cameron, uh, I remember telling me once his favourite ever PMQs was when he, he just had a series of jokes about Ed Miliband having two kitchens. Um, uh, those of us who remember that, that was once the biggest story in British politics, Ed Miliband having two kitchens. And David Cameron, I think it's probably his best joke was um, uh, he felt sorry for Ed Miliband because he didn't know where his next meal was coming from, which I thought was uh, very good. But that sort of brought the house down because there were hundreds of people in the House of Commons. Anyway, let's go back and see if uh, Boris Johnson can match uh, Keir Starmer either with the numbers or the jokes. No, I know, Mr Speaker, because uh, and of course we will look at what the independent peer review body has to say, uh, exceptionally about the, the nursing profession, whom we particularly uh, particularly value. But what he should also know, uh, and which he uh, should reflect to the House, is that under this government, uh, we not only began by a record increase uh, in NHS funding over, I think, £33.9 billion, but because of the pandemic, we put another £63 billion into supporting our NHS, Mr Speaker, on top of the £100. £40 billion pounds of in-year spending, and it's because of this government that in one year alone, Mr Speaker, there are another 49,000 people working in our NHS, and that, I think, is something that is of massive... Be- Uh, that was Boris Johnson there boasting about the the, the extra people who've appeared uh, working in the NHS. Basically, this is just a battle of numbers, isn't it, Tim? Just trying to bamboozle all sides. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, the argument Boris Johnson hasn't successfully landed yet is the one that, you know, he, he hasn't stressed that everybody else is getting a pay freeze. And he has he's used this word exceptionally twice. You know, he has specifically asked the pay review body to agree a pay rise for nurses. I don't think any anyone who wasn't following this closely would yet have got that point. Um, but, you know, you you know, there are all lies, damn lies and statistics in politics, you, you know, Frankly, this isn't going to be persuading anybody um, who wasn't already on one side or the other. Um, you know, if you're a Tory, you've got more nurses and you've put huge amounts of money into the health service. If you're Labour, it's still not enough. Um, and that's, you know, been a long theme in British politics for the last 70 or 80 years. And uh, it is, the, the pandemic is not going to change that. I suppose there's also the risk that if Boris Johnson does ask the pay review body to come back with an increased number for, for NHS workers that the public impression of not wanting to pay NHS workers more will have stuck and the U-turn will um, be uh, slightly overlooked. Anyway, let's go back. Keir Starmer in the House of Commons. 
My sister was a nurse. My wife works in the NHS. I know what it means to work for the NHS. When I clap for carers, I meant it. He clapped for carers, then he shut the door in their face at the first opportunity. And the more you look at the Prime Minister's decision, the worse it gets. Because it's not just a pay cut, it's a broken promise too. Time and time again, he said that the NHS wouldn't pay the price for this pandemic. Two years ago, he made a promise to the NHS. Here in black and white, his document, it commits to a minimum pay rise of 2.1%. It's been budgeted for and now it's being taken away. He shakes his head. His MPs voted for it. So why, after everything the NHS has done for us, is he now breaking promise after promise? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, he, he voted against the document in, uh, in question, which is uh, to crown the absurdity of it. Uh, of his point. Uh, this, under, this, under this government, we have massively increased funding uh, for our amazing NHS, with the result, as I say, there are 6,500 more doctors uh, this year than there were last year, uh, 18,000 more healthcare uh, workers, and 10,600 more nurses. And we're going to go on, Mr. Speaker, and we are going to deliver our promises. I can tell the Right Honourable Gentleman. We are going to go on and we're going to build uh, 40 more hospitals, and we're going to recruit uh, 50,000 more nurses, and we're going to get on and deliver on our pledges to the British people. And we're going to do that because of our sound management of the economy and the fastest vaccine uh, rollout programme of any comparable country, uh, which, frankly, uh, if we'd followed uh, his precepts and his ideas, uh, we would certainly not have been able to achieve. He says he voted for it. He did. There we are. That's uh, Keir Keir Starmer there doing his... uh, Some of my best friends and nurses routine. The thing I wonder about uh, this, Tim, is the the political impact of all this. The the Labour Party... What Keir Starmer really needs to do is put a sort of electric shock through the electorate, uh, if that's not too many electrics, um, to try and jolt people into thinking there's more to him than just not being Jeremy Corbyn. Is being nicer to the NHS than the Tories enough, do you think? It's not a big surprise, is it? No, it's not a big surprise, but he's tried to being, you know, the best friend of business, um, which is more of a surprise um, historically from a Labour leader. And he copped a load of flack from people in his own party for doing so. <laughs> so, you know, it's not easy being the leader of the opposition. Um, you know, a Labour leader has to go on the NHS because it is always the issue on which the Labour Party has the most cut through, you know, and has been for decades. Um, a Labour leader not uh, hitting hard on the NHS um, wouldn't be doing his job uh, Uh, properly to be perfectly honest Um, but you know he's got a difficult argument he can keep saying you're not spending enough money and Boris Johnson could turn around and say we are spending huge unprecedented astronomical sums of money Um, and you know while people might locally have examples where they know that their local hospital or whatever is falling short they you know existentially sort of understand that vast sums of money have been thrown at this problem Um, and it's a difficult one more than ever for Labour to get traction with. Just flipping the opposite then, and the, the sort of the political strategy for the Tories, why not just give nurses a bigger pay rise? The amount well, of they, money they, that... They, they will they, do they, in the end, won't they? I mean, they, they, I mean that's what I mean. Why not, why not make it the centrepiece of the budget last week uh, instead of super deductions, whatever that might mean to a man in the street? Uh, well, quite. I mean, uh, we all wonder about that particular policy being the headline news on the day. Um, 
well, look, there's a process here, as they say, and um, they're going to end up paying probably closer to the 2.1% that the, the NHS thought it was most likely to get. Um, but they'll be hiding behind the pay review body and they'll be able to say, look, this is gone. We put in our proposals. Other people did, too. And this is the number that has been approved by the independent pay review body. Um, and that's what they'll end up paying, I suspect. And they may even be slightly more generous and say we've gone a little bit further than that. Um, but if they put in you know, two, three percent now, which would have cost huge sums of money, they'd have ended up pay, paying even more than that. Instead, they put in one percent and they'll probably end up paying one and a half to two. It's a haggling process, a haggling process. Well, let's go back to Keir Stop and let's see if he sticks with the NHS. 2.1 percent ripped up. And if the Prime Minister won't listen to me, he should listen to what his own Conservative MPs are saying about this, his own side. This is what they say. Behind you, Prime Minister, it's inept. It's unacceptable. It's pathetic. These are Conservative MPs about the Prime Minister's pay cut for nurses. And that's before his answers today. Another of MPs said this, Mr Speaker, and this is perhaps the most telling of all the comments. This MP said, sitting behind him, the public just hear 1% and they think how mean we are. Mr Speaker, even his own MPs know he's got this wrong. Why is he going ahead with it? Uh, just just a point of clarity there's almost nobody sitting on the benches behind Boris Johnson so um and we don't I don't I think that's an anonymous uh, quote that uh, so we don't know who it was but the odds are they're probably not there but anyway let's see how Boris Johnson responds Mr Speaker what the public know is that we're increasing uh, pay for starting pay for nurses by 12.8% over the last 3 years uh, they know that this government uh, in the last year has put another 5000 pound bursary into the pockets uh, of nurses because we support them and as well well as the 3,000 extra uh, for training. And uh, of course, uh, it's very, very important that the public sector pay review body uh, should come back uh, with its proposals, and we will, of course, study them. Uh, but it, as I say, it is thanks to the investment made by this government that there are 49,000 more people in the NHS this year than last year, 10,600 more nurses helping to relieve the burden on our hard-pressed nurses. That is what this government is investing in. Speaker, he says we support. Uh, let's just jump in there before we get to the uh, before we get to the last one. Um, I should point out, I think that quote might have come from uh, Esther Weber in the uh, Times Red Box. It was uh, so. This is a couple of days ago. She was writing for the Times Red Box, quoting a senior Tory MP. They should have pre- prepared the ground. The public just hear one percent. How think how mean we are. I think what will happen is the pay review body in the summer will recommend a bit more, and the government will accept it. By then, we will have taken the political hit. This is a needless wrist-slashing moment. When handled better, it could have been very different. Um, that's basically what we've just been saying, Tim Shipman. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the other question is, what else might they do? Uh, is it possible that they want to just acknowledge coronavirus whilst not digging a money pit for the future by offering a one-off bonus? That's uh, There have been discussions about that in Whitehall. Uh, there's talk of honouring uh, people in the NHS in, in other ways. Some local trusts are issuing medals and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I think, you know, that might be seen as uh, derisory by uh, some people working in the NHS if that was the main focus of it. Um, they clearly want some want, want some money. But, um, you know, traditionally they're not paid for holiday they've missed. That's another thing where you could uh, throw some money uh, at people who've been working very hard. Um, and in Scotland, they've tried some of these things. So uh, it's not just the sort of annual pay rise uh, that's at issue. And it's possible that if you did that, you'd be acknowledging the coronavirus crisis without necessarily... 
you know, once you've recruited all these extra nurses, if you're paying them even more, the cost is going to be astronomically higher. So um, that's what they're keen to avoid in the long term. OK, let's go back to Keir Starmer then, his last question from PMQ today. We'll reward them. He's cutting their pay. Mr Speaker, not true, he says. Not true. Prime Minister, a 1% rise versus 1.7% inflation rise. That is a real terms cut. And if the Prime Minister doesn't understand that, we really are in trouble. Mr Speaker, they promised honesty. But the truth is they can afford to give Dominic Cummings a 40% tax pay rise and they can't afford to reward the NHS properly. The mask really is slipping and we can see what the Conservative Party now stands for. Cutting pay for nurses, putting taxes up on families. He's had the opportunity to change course, but he's refused. So if he's so determined to cut NHS pay, we at least show some courage and put it to a vote in this Parliament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Speaker, the last time we've had put in a vote, he voted against it. Uh, as, I, as, I, as I said before, we're increasing uh, pay for nurses. Uh, we're massively increasing our investment uh, in the NHS. We're, we are steering a steady course, uh, whereas he weaves and, and wobbles from one week to the next, Mr. Speaker. Uh, one, one week he's, a, he's attacking us. Uh, saying we should be doing more testing. The next week, uh, he's denouncing us for, uh, for doing it, for spending money on, on testing. One week, he calls for us for a faster rollout of PPE. The next week, he's saying we spent too, too much, Mr. Speaker. Uh, he's got he's to he's make, make his mind. One week, he calls for a faster vaccination rollout, when he actually voted, although he, he claims to have forgotten it, uh, to stay in the European Medicines Agency. Perhaps he'd like, to, perhaps he'd like to, to confirm that he voted to stay in the European Medicines Agency, Mr. Speaker, which would have made that vaccine rollout impossible. We vaccinate, we get on with delivering for the people of this country, we vaccinate, he vacillates, Mr Speaker, and that's the difference. There we go, finishing with not even a new joke, Uh, never mind a good one, Tim Shipman. Uh, yeah, now we've heard the um, uh, the vaccinate vacillate line before. Um, I think you know, I mean, actually, that was a fairly um, uninspiring conclusion on from both sides. Um, uh, the, it's the Labour slogan I find interesting. You saw Starmer there talking about how the Tory mask is slipping and the real Tories are, are emerging un- underneath. They used the same attack line against Rishi Sunak over the budget. Um, I think you know, it's interesting that they're trying to say these, you know. Beneath all this, you know, extra spending, these Tories are, um, uh, you know, back to their bad old ways. But actually, I think it's rather revealing. Um, it slightly suggests that the public has bought the mask. It understands the mask. It, it has uh, priced in the, the mask of Tories being friendlier and spending more money. Um, so they're trying to say that it's a sort of uh, a fake face, as it were. But it, it, in doing so, they're almost acknowledging that the public has bought shares in that face. And that reveals, you know, something of the, the political dilemma they face, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting that. that, Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we know that they look nice. What we're telling you is they're not really. It's a very different um, position to be in. You know, it's the first stage, I suppose, of the opposition's attack, isn't it? Because they then need to say, get everyone to think, oh, no, the government is bad. And then they'll start looking at them. So they're sort of one one step further behind than they might have been otherwise. It's not always successful, Matt. I mean, if you go back to when Tony Blair was leader of the opposition, the Tories tried this trick with him and said, you know, this Blair chap ran on a very socialist manifesto in 1983. And he's, you know, he's um, uh, a lefty underneath. You know, you can't trust this Tony Blair. He pretends to be a friend of Middle England, but actually he's this 
uh, wicked left winger. Um, and I think, you know, Blair wasn't a wicked left winger. He was a massive centrist. And the public kind of grasped that and thought the Tory argument was a bit ridiculous. And I think... Oh, the, old de- the devil eyes, the evil eyes of the... Yeah, all that, demon eyes and, and, demon eyes. and those kind of things. And, and, and again, the public kind of gets that Boris Johnson is a slightly different sort of Tory who does like splashing the money around. So it's a, it's a harder argument to make than it was against some previous Tory leaders. It's also it also feels it's weird because maybe this is because the, the speed that politics moves at. But um, banding around Dominic Cummings's name feels already a bit retro. One of the things we've noticed in the focus groups that we've done this year compared to the ones la- last year, it was a sort of ding ding that you could guarantee somebody would bring up Dominic Cummings uh, in the sort of focus group drinking game. That sort of stopped happening now. People do seem to have moved on. So it's sort of slightly interesting. And people think, well, he's been gone for ages. What are you talking about? You've got to pay rise. It feels a, it feels a bit of a long time ago. Maybe it's I don't know. I don't know who who would have been a better uh, baddie to have, have chosen. It just feels like a slightly retro attack from Keir Starmer. Yeah, Cummings has been gone for four months and, and has not made any public interventions. I think there are people who might be suspicious that he's uh, uh, making some private ones along the way and some of the political stories running at the moment. But um, uh, this is not a guy who has uh, been in the public eye um, for, for four months or more. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Cummings, you know, trip north really cut through last year. Um, and, you know, he's one of the few aides, you know, perhaps since Alistair Campbell, who has been reasonably well known to the public. Um, but that resonance is inevitably going to decline. And, um, you know, this pay rise was, you know, quite some time ago. Yeah, no, it'd be interested to see how uh, what what impact that um, actually has. And then Boris Johnson just finally rounding up with basically all the things he hoped Keir Starmer would complain about, but didn't really. Uh, it was very telling. Spe- he was clearly expecting lots of questions <laughs> about the twenty three billion wasted on test and trace. Uh, there was one brief mention of it at the beginning, but it was part of his stirring peroration, and actually, um, uh, it, it it didn't need to be there, did it? No, uh, he he barely, he mentioned uh, the testing just once. He didn't mention PPE at all, or the vaccine rollout, but didn't stop Boris Johnson uh, attacking him for his positions, regardless. Yeah, and then but you know these were both attempts to do a sort of uh, political roundup at the end, and they both fluffed their lines. Frankly, Johnson was sort of you know uh, gasping for breath mid sentence, and uh, and Starmer you know um, talked about taxing Cummings more rather than giving him a pay rise. So that soundbite won't land well for the six o'clock news either. So um, I can't say um, either of them really uh, left with slogans that are going to cause them to romp to victory in the local elections. If you're going to write this up, then uh, Tim, given that uh, you know it, it, the ability to, to sort of stir the troops is slightly lacking, given that there are no troops there. Top line from this: Who's the overall winner? Well, I think Starmer is always going to um, uh, be on good terrain when he talks about um, the the NHS pay rise. But I mean, the short answer is um, you'd have to be a pretty desperate journalist to write it up today. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 